Well, good morning. I'd like to begin with a verse from 1 John chapter 3. It says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I want to say welcome to week two of a six-week series we're doing right now called Deliver Us, which is all about life in the victory of Jesus. And for six weeks, we're going to be talking about the world, the flesh, and the schemes of the devil. And for six weeks, we're going to recognize that there is a spiritual battle that is happening among us and that it is real. And for six weeks, we're going to talk about what it means to live in the joy and the hope and the victory and the freedom of Jesus. And for six weeks, to be honest, a series I'm a little bit freaked out to preach on. If you've uh, ever wanted to be a little bit nervous about spiritual warfare, try standing on stage and, and talking about it. But I am encouraged because the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. So I want to say welcome here today. My name is Kevin, and I get to be your preacher today. Uh, whether you're new or visiting, I hope uh, that, that you feel God's presence and that you experience the hope and the love of Jesus today, and that our, our series on Deliver Us isn't, a little, uh, isn't too freaky for you today, that it doesn't stress you out too much. And I want to say thank you to Matthew Price, who was here last week. Were any of you here last week for Matthew's sermon? Yeah, probably a lot of you were. And so uh, Matthew is the lead pastor for all three of our campuses. And uh, we try and get him here to Aldergrove about twice a semester. And he's actually going to be coming back once more during this series to preach. And so I'm thankful. Um, and in a series on spiritual warfare, we can actually feel that talking about the devil, talking about demons, talking about Satan, talking about the, the powers of darkness, that that can feel very heavy that that can feel um, dark. But our desire as preachers during this series is to actually have the opposite effect, that we want to understand with confidence uh, the power and the victory that we have over sin and death and the enemy of our souls and to understand the work of the devil and to be able to see and understand the way the devil operates in order that we may not be deceived or fooled or tricked by him. So for the first part of this sermon, I'm actually going to review some of the highlights from Matthew's sermon last week. I love doing this during topical series to just kind of keep building on what has come before. And something that Matthew, Jeff, and I found helpful uh, in, in uh, thinking about this series was some work done by the Bible Project. Um, did any of you listen to the Bible Project or watch their stuff? It's fantastic. Uh, they have a series on spiritual beings, which you might find helpful. It's, it's just about seven short, like three or four minute videos. And one of the things that it talks about is that we often think of spiritual, spirituality in terms of just us and God. That there's me, and that there's God, and there's you, and there's God. And so we think of the two main players as being humans and God. But according to the Bible, and something that Jesus seemed to be very aware of, was that there was a third character. That according to, to what Jesus taught, that there was another group of characters at play in the world, and that these spiritual beings somehow uh, run parallel to what we do here on earth, but also overlap. That there is both a spiritual and a physical to this world, and there are characters involved in both. That, so that there's God and there's humans, but there's also these spiritual beings. And one of these spiritual beings or forces we call the devil or the Satan. Now, most of us choose, myself included, uh, to live kind of largely ignoring this, right? I, I don't like to think about the devil a lot. I don't like to think about the schemes of the enemy or demons or spiritual forces because it seems too weird, and we don't want to obsess about these things. We don't want to spend too much of our lives focused on them because uh, I don't want to be one of those weird Christians that blames everything on the devil, right? Like, the devil made me do it, and there's all these things because... 
because that can get tricky. Uh, Kaiser Sose in the movie The Usual Suspect says, nobody believed he was real. That was his power. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. See, it's very tempting to think of Satan or the devil or demons as some weird comical characters in red spandex with a pitchfork, pointy tail, and ears, right? Like, it's almost Halloween. You're probably going to get some devils showing up on your doorstep uh, in, in less than two weeks. And, but that's, that's not accurate. That's a, a cartoonish, childish version of the devil. But the New Testament describes the devil as a spirit, as a spiritual being who looks like light. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he says, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So let's try and get out of our minds this kind of cartoon idea of what the devil is. And instead, let's see what the biblical authors have to say about it. He is often referred to as the devil in the Old Testament. In Hebrew, devil means slanderer. So he is referred to not that his name is devil, but that he is the devil. He is the slanderer. In the New Testament, he's called Satan. And Satan means in Greek, uh, it means the accuser. So again, his name isn't Satan, he is the Satan, he is the deceiver, he is, sorry, he is the slanderer, and he is the accuser. These are his titles. The devil and Satan, um, that this is the same spiritual being, and he is the slanderer and the accuser. And so I want to challenge you to think about in your life, if you've ever felt slandered, accused, condemned, do you think that that was maybe a spiritual attack? Could that maybe have been the work of the, of the devil or the work of Satan? Because that is the work that he is trying to do, to slander, to condemn, and to deceive. That's what he does. The New Testament also says that he is called the evil one. He is called a dragon. He is called a serpent. He is called a tempter. He is called the ruler of the prince of this age. See, Jesus saw the world this way. Jesus knew there was a real presence of evil in the world. And last week, Matthew reminded us about the three-part axis of evil, that there's the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world means systems of evil, like we, we understand systems of evil, systematic evil. Things like um, human trafficking and slavery and oppression and war. This is, this is the world. The flesh are the evil desires within us, or that compulsion that we have towards selfishness or to sin. And then there's the devil who is the slanderer and the deceiver. So when Jesus looked at the world, he knew that there was an enemy whose job it was to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus seems to have this very much in the forefront of his mind throughout the Gospels. He says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. That this is the job description of the Satan, of the devil, to steal, to kill, and destroy. This is what he's here for. This is his job description. But Jesus says that I have come that they may have life and have it to the full in John 10.10. 10. Have there been things in your life that have been taken from you, have been destroyed or put to death, physically, relationally, spiritually? Then maybe we have an enemy. Maybe we have an enemy of our souls. And as we're learning to be apprenticed to Jesus, let's try and see the world the way Jesus did on spiritual matters. And he is leading us into the life. I love this passage because this is not a passage about Satan or the devil winning or having victory, but this is a, is a verse about that Jesus is the triumphant king, that Jesus came, that we could have life and have it to the full, that he came to offer that to us. So today, 
So today, in today's message, we're going to be talking about how do I resist the devil? That's our topic for the day. How does the devil work? Learning how he operates is going to be one of the keys to resisting him. So, so two and a half millennia ago, the, in the book The Art of War, the Chinese military savant Sun Si um, gave this advice. He said, know your enemy. Know your enemy. That's the goal of this series, actually. If you look at kind of what we're trying to do throughout the six weeks, it's to know your enemy, to unmask the face of our enemy so that we may be ready to fight and to not be deceived by him. That's the goal. Last week, Matthew, who's an American, uh, used a football analogy, okay? And it's like, not only do we need to know our enemy, we need to know our audience. And I was like, Matthew, we're in Canada, it's Canuck season, we use hockey analogies, right? And so... uh, Anyone watch the game yesterday? Yeah, Canucks, yeah, did very well. Uh, Just really quick, we're going to talk about the Canucks for just one second. Uh, Your favorite player on the Canucks is? Pedersen. Anyone else? Quinn Hughes. Going to get Norris votes this year, looking forward to that. Anyone else? Demko, yes. We have have some great players, okay? And these these are the the guys that kind of make up our team. And then they're led by our coach. Does anyone know who our coach is? Rick Tockett. Yeah, that's right. And so he's the coach. Now, now those are kind of the easy ones. I'm going to ask you a harder one. Because between games, hockey players, like football players, but Matthew, know your audience, they watch a lot of film in order to prepare for their next opponent. So this is a harder one. Who is the Canucks video coach? Does anyone know? Video coach. Who said that? That's fantastic. Dylan Crawford. Also, I love this image so much. Um, It looks like he's just like sprouting up from the earth or the moon or something. Uh, Thank you to Darcy who put that graphic together. But this is Dylan Crawford. This is Dylan Crawford, and his job is to sit in a room and watch a video on who the Canucks are playing next who their next opponent is. And and he does this in order to be able to exploit their weaknesses and to defend their attacks. He wants to give the coaches and the players every advantage that they can to how their opponent operates so that they can best create a plan to defeat them. And he has sessions with the players and the coaches, and he shows them what their opponents does. He says, how do they enter the zone? How do they defend on the penalty kill? Do they use a, a, a box or a diamond formation? Uh, what do they do? And he says, how do they set up on the power play? How do they do this? And he teaches the coaches and the players how the opponent works so that they can create a game plan to defeat them. Knowing how your opponent works what their attacks look like, and what their defenses are is so helpful when going into combat. Because when you study your opponent, you see their tactics and the strategies that they've used in the past, and you can see where they are vulnerable for defeat. So today, I want to be a little bit like Dylan Crawford, but in the spiritual realm. I want to see my head shooting out of the the moon like that. Um, But I, I want to point out some of the enemy's tactics so that we are set up to defeat. That's what we're going to be talking about today, because I believe it's possible to know and understand what the devil is doing, and then we can expose the way in which he works, so that when we're being attacked, we can say, ah, I see, I see what's happening here. I know what's coming next. You can see what what the devil, what Satan is doing. You can understand it, and then you can defend it. So the question is, how does the devil work? Jeremy Treat, uh, in his book called Crucified King, writes this, that this is how the enemy works. He says, the means by which Satan rules are one, temptation, two, deception, 
three accusation, all of which result in four death. These are the works or schemes of the devil. Temptation, deception, accusation, and death. We're going to be talking a lot about these today. In fact, I'm going to try and get you to to remember these, so I'm going to say them a lot. Let's say them together. Repeat after me. Temptation, deception, accusation leads to death. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to say the leads to part. Good job. Um, so what we're doing here is, is like Dylan Crawford, we're watching tape. We're trying to understand how the enemy works. We're creating a game plan so that when he attacks, and we know he will attack, that we know how to defend his schemes. Because this is what he does. Temptation, deception, accusation, leading to death. This is how he works almost every single time. In temptation, he shows you something, something you desire that you know maybe isn't good for you or that you shouldn't have. And then there's deception where he lies to you, trying to get you to reason with why you should have this thing that you know is bad for you, trying to justify why it's okay or why you deserve it. And then once once you sin, once you kind of take that fruit, once you, once you cross over into sin, he then immediately accuses you and condemns you and even uses God's law and word against you. He says, look at yourself. He says, when you sin, he says, you're a failure, you're a disappointment, you're weak, you're worthless, you're ugly, you're full of shame. And these lies and accusations are the work of the devil. When you feel lies, when you feel accusation, when you feel shame, this is the work of the devil, and it's evil. See, kings rule with words by proclaiming and pronouncing and declaring words. Okay, Jesus, the true king, he speaks words of love and of light. He speaks speaks words that are in opposition to the devil's lies. He speaks words that are truth and full of life. But the devil, the devil uses words too, not always audible words, but he rules by speaking fallacy to our hearts and our minds. The Bible says that his native tongue is to speak lies and falsehood. This is how the enemy works in marriages. It's how he works in broken relationships. It's how he works in addiction, in pornography, in systemic sin. It's how he works in selfishness and in pride and in hate and in greed and just about everything else. In just about every area of our life, we see this three-part cycle leading to death so clearly. And we see it in the Word as well. In Genesis chapter 3, we see this cycle very clearly. And we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3 today. And it's here that we read the story about how the serpent deceives Adam and Eve. How he first tempts and then deceives and then brings shame for Adam and Eve. See, God had put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, this beautiful paradise. And he had given it to them to enjoy. It's beautiful. And he says, go and take care of it and enjoy it. Enjoy all these trees. And how many trees were in the Garden of Eden? Who knows? Maybe hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands. And, he, and God says, go enjoy those trees, as many as there are, with trees with shade and fruit. They're good for climbing and resting under. But he says, leave this one tree alone. So what does Satan do? He brings this tree to mind for Adam and Eve. What tree becomes the most intriguing? What tree does Satan literally say to Eve? Tell me about that tree. See, there is one tree that was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 1. And it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say we must not eat from the 
sorry, eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and we must not touch it or you will surely die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. See, this is actually called a meta-story in the Bible. It's a story that's repeated again and again throughout history, again and again throughout time, and to be honest, again and again in my life, and probably again and again in your life. It's a story that is played out again and again. It's a story of this temptation, deception, and accusation. See, I want you guys to remember what we're doing right now is we're not looking to see how powerful the enemy is. We're looking to watch tape and to see how he operates and to see how he works. Remember that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And so that's what we're doing today. This is our verse that we're going to keep coming back to. Jeremy Treat calls the story in Genesis chapter 3. He says, it's a paradigm for the way the devil has worked throughout the ages. So let's see how the devil works through this temptation, deception, accusation, and ultimately death. So number one, temptation. Humans are tempted by this fruit because, the, because Satan brings it up and, and, and has Eve kind of fixate on it. And they long for wisdom and enlightenment, for their eyes to be opened. Some, actually many Bible scholars argue that what is happening here is not so much that they just want to eat the tree, eat from the tree and know about good and evil, because knowing about good and evil is actually a good thing. But what's happening here is they're actually trying to define for themselves what good and evil is. To not submit to God's definition of good and evil, but to say from yourselves, what is good and evil for me? The temptation here is to define good and evil for yourself. It doesn't matter what God says. I am going to rule my own life. I am going to be Lord of my life. But that's what the temptation is here. So they are first tempted with that. They're tempted to define for themselves what is good and evil. And then number two, deception. Then they were deceived by, sorry, they were deceived by the serpent. And you see his deceit here. It says, you will not certainly die, which is a lie. The serpent said to the woman, it's a blatant lie to take and eat what was forbidden and to try and be like God, defining good and evil for yourself. That would ultimately bring death. So Satan is a liar. God warned them about this. So he deceives them and then he confuses them. And what he's saying to Adam and Eve here, he's saying, and what he says to us is, those consequences don't apply to you. In fact, those consequences aren't so bad. The consequences of that sin might actually be good. You might gain something from it. You can handle it. It's not a big deal. It's fun. In fact, good is going to come from it. You deserve this. You will need this. And you should take it. You will be like God. You will get what you want. Now, something to note here, Adam and Eve have been tempted and they have been deceived, but they haven't sinned yet. Adam and Eve have not been sinning, they've been tempted and they've been lied to. It's not a sin to be tempted. Sin is something that, that we do or participate in, it's, and it's not a sin to be tempted. In fact, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and he was without sin. But especially when we have sin that is repeated, a lot of times we feel that accusation simply by being tempted. 
A couple of times from the stage, I've bashed uh, Christian purity culture from the 90s and 2000s. And I think that one of the negative effects of Christian purity culture from that time was that we taught young people that being tempted towards sexual sin was just as bad as sexual sin. To even notice or be attracted to someone was so close to lust that you needed to avoid any situation where you might be tempted because there's no way you could battle that temptation. And I believe that we actually raised a generation of people who have increased shame and guilt around sexual temptation because of this. And so when you feel tempted and confused or deceived, it's actually time to step back, to recognize the tactics of the enemy, to say, I see what's happening here. I've seen the film. I know his strategy, and I know what's going to come next. Sin is what comes next. And when, when you follow through with that sin and that temptation and you eat the fruit, the enemy then immediately goes to accusation and condemnation. Immediately after they take the fruit, they experience the accusation of shame. So the serpent in the story, he tempts, he deceives, and then they experience the shame. They're immediately ashamed of their nakedness. And it says that Adam and Eve sewed together fig leaves and they, they literally put up a barrier of clothes between themselves and God and themselves and each other. Until now, there was no sin, there was no shame, there were no walls or barriers, but the accusation of shame raises walls both physically as well as, as symbolically through our emotional and relational and spiritual lives that we put up these walls to keep what is vulnerable, to keep what is naked hidden. And the enemy uses scripture here and he twists it and it's so deceitful what he does. He takes partial truths, partial things that God has said, and he distorts it in order to make it a lie. He's a master at it. He says, did God say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? That's not at all what God said. God said, eat from all the trees except one. And so the serpent makes God out to sound like a killjoy or a harsh master. He uses his words to deceive us. More than once in Scripture, Satan used a distorted and twisted uh, interpretation of Scripture to manipulate and corrupt us. First he tempts, then he deceives, then he accuses. And death comes to the world through all of this. And sadly, this is a well-worn path that leads to death for a lot of us. We all know people who have lived their own version of this story. In fact, we've all lived this story, wanting to choose for ourselves what is good, only to experience the harshness and consequences that come with shame and regret. So he's saying, come on, he says, make your own rules. It's not going to be so bad. You can handle it. And he distorts the truth to make temptation seem justifiable. And we say to ourselves, I deserve this. This rule shouldn't apply to me for such and such a reason. It applies to everyone else. I need to do this thing to take the edge off. This person hurt me, so the resentment and the anger I feel are justified. It's when we say, I've been cheated, so it's okay for me to cheat someone else. See, he shows you something hurtful, but something that we desire, something that's a shortcut, which is what Matthew talked about last week, and he deceives us into trying to get it. And the second we follow through, the second we sin, he accuses and condemns, and it's evil. And this happens with so many things. I want you to think about where you've seen this pattern in your own life. Where have you seen this pattern of temptation, deception, and accusation in your own life? For some people, it's pornography, and it's the lie that this image on a screen will satisfy you and make you feel loved, accepted, and valued. Or the lie that if you could get that big payout on that bet, that all of your financial problems would be solved. 
Or the lie that the pain and suffering that you experience are that one person's fault, and so that the anger and the, the resentment and the bitterness that you feel towards them are justified. Or that all of your problems are tied to a house that's too small, or a car that's too old, or a job that's too hard, or a spouse that's too distant. And so we covet, and we long for this one thing that is going to fix us and make us happy. Or there's a lie that you can't be worthy until you hit that magical number on a scale. Or the lie that you've sinned too much or too badly that God could never look at you with love and delight again. That you are too damaged, too broken. And I want to tell you today that if you've experienced these things, that these are lies, they're lies, they're lies. The goal of the enemy is to steal, kill, and destroy. And that's what he does when he tells us these lies. And it creates this vicious cycle of temptation, deception, and accusation, which leads to death in our lives. And the experience of accusation makes it so much easier to give up next time. And like I said, when we experience temptation, sometimes we go right to accusation, even without sinning, because we've walked that path so many times, and it becomes so hard to fight. We feel defeated even before we begin. But here's the deal, everyone. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Amen? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. I want to remind us today that Jesus is coming in truth with a great rescue plan for us, his children, that amidst every temptation, every deception, every accusation, when we turn to Jesus, we see truth and we see life. We turn to Jesus and we see the victory. We see a better love, a better fulfillment, an acceptance and embrace that no temptation can offer. No lies like the enemy, but truth and forgiveness, where God says, you are my child and I love you and I paid the price for you, that your identity is that of a beloved child of God. At the cross, Jesus died to, so that the death that Adam and Eve passed on to us would no longer apply to us. In 1 Corinthians, it says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, so that he died so that you and I do not have to live with the effects of death. He rose from the dead in order that we might raise from the dead, and his blood cleanses us from all sin, and he rescues you and I from the curse of the enemy. And at the cross, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent and says, it is finished. Colossians 2 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He disarmed the powers of darkness and the battle is done and Christ is the victor. And he continues to crush the head of the enemy today. Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. Do you guys remember that song from youth group? Yeah, that's right. God of peace will soon crush Satan. God will crush him underneath your feet. Yeah, that's right. That's how the song goes. And so I'm telling you today that Jesus came to sabotage the work of the enemy. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis that says, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, and you might say landed in disguise, and calling us to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. A great campaign of sabotage. We're bringing the world back to Jesus. I want to invite my friend Matthew Warnock. I hope he's here already. He was at youth. Matthew, are you here? Yes, Matthew. Matthew's going to come up. Everyone say hello to Matthew. Matthew is, I think, what we call you is the Youth and Families Graduate Ministries Coordinator. Is that right? Something like that. Something like that. And uh, I've invited Matthew to, to share 
a bit of his story and how his story testifies to the goodness of God working in our lives. So Matthew, I'm going to turn it over to you. Thank you for being here. Here, try this one. Is this? Yes, it is. Okay, and I just want to say thank you to my, our high school students for coming and joining in the back of the sanctuary. They are up there hiding away. So we have taken a, a break from our, our group uh, to come and join you guys in the, in the larger service. So uh, I do want to start off by saying that this is a portion of my testimony. God is the author in, of my story, and in him I find love, grace, and redemption. May the sharing of this bring him the glory. And before I begin fully, I want to make this portion of my story clear. I should start by telling you that I was married at the age of 21, prior to my current wife, Michelle, who's part of this church body with us today. With that said, nearly seven years ago, two years into that marriage, my wife decided that she no longer wanted to be married to me. She kept everything with her that we had, and hardest of all, my daughter, Stella. I walked away from my degree in pastoral ministry that I was nearly finished. At that time, I had lost my wife, my daughter, my calling, and it seemed like my God. I was immediately tempted and deceived. The lie was that I could not cope and that God no longer cared for me. This was extremely hard for me, and I turned to a source in which I learned to cope with pain previously, alcohol. In many ways, I found myself completely hope hopeless, carrying more pain than I even know how to describe today. I quickly became addicted and could no longer stop. And at that point in my life, I had been well acquainted with our supernatural God, and I was just becoming acquainted more so with the enemy. I did not walk away from my faith, but I could not figure out how to live it in a glorifying way and break free from the sin in which I fell. Four months of drinking landed me in the hospital from a seizure due to withdrawals, which you think would have stopped me for good, but it didn't. I had periods of sobriety and recovery when I tried my hardest with AA, counseling, journaling, devotion, devotions, community groups, promises, etc., but nothing ever lasted long. And a small caveat, those are helpful things, avenues in which I stand by and support, but they were not working for me. I knew all along that the battle I was facing was a spiritual one. The foothold that the enemy had already claimed in me ran deep. I was accused, and I was condemned. I believed that I was worthless, unloved, and incompetent. But God was not done with me yet. It was another year that went by of struggling when I finally started to give it all over to him, or at least learn how to do so. I was convinced to try something called Freedom Session, I still say tricked into it, but nonetheless, I completed. It was there that I recognized how much of my physical addiction or emotional depravity directly correlated with my spiritual pain and weakness. God showed me to take steps to, de 
to deplete the enemy's foothold in my life, especially as I became aware of the power Satan had over me. One of the, one of the things that I started to do was um, to start speaking out loud whenever I passed a liquor store, saying, I am a child of God's, and Satan, you have no power over me. The enemy is not omniscient like God and can't hear our thoughts, so I cannot just think it. And as weird as it felt, and I'm sure looked to others, they were powerful words, and I had to say them out loud. Another thing in which God had taught me was to fill the void in which I was removing in myself. The addiction, sin, and foothold all had to be replaced with better things. Because hating something is not enough to stop, but we have to love something greater. I had to learn to love my something greater or someone. To love God and all who he is and all he has done for me. To love myself and know my place in him. To love his perfect plan and will for my life. These truths transformed the way that I lived completely. These truths are are why I am here today, sober, with my daughter, a wonderful wife who loves me, this opportunity to be serving in my church on staff at this incredible campus and proclaiming the name of the one who made it possible. As 1 Peter 2 talks about, uh, there is a war that's being waged for our souls. And verse 9 and 10 specifically tells us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you for listening today. Yeah, Matthew, thank you so much for being vulnerable, for sharing that with us. I'm going to invite the worship team up. I want to remind us today that Jesus has won a great victory on the cross and that he is offering us freedom, hope, and a future. He's offering us forgiveness, grace, and life. The person of Jesus is the counter to every temptation, that he offers us a deeper love and a deeper joy than anything that the enemy could, could even um, suggest that we could have with him. Every lie and deception Jesus counters with himself, with his truth. Every accusation and work that we are worthless or that our lives are hopeless, Jesus reminds us that we are beloved children of God, deeply loved, deeply valued, people with a purpose, people who are not alone, and people who are cherished by God himself. So this week, I want to challenge you to spend time talking with mentors, with friends, with spouses, with life groups, apprentice groups, where we can be honest and vulnerable and share some of these areas in which we are tempted and deceived and accused. Like Matthew said, sometimes we have to say these things out loud. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it's really hard. But community is essential. We don't have to share, like, I don't want to, like, try and force you into something you're not comfortable with, but find someone that you are comfortable with and share. It says in James, it says, Submit yourself then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
It's not a battle between two equal forces. It's not like, it's not like a hockey game where there's two teams and one might win and the other might lose. The, the power or the battle between God and Satan is one that is already won. God is infinitely more powerful than the enemy of our souls. The one who is in you, John 4, is greater than the one who is in the world. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And I want to remind you that there is a prayer team. And through this series, I believe that, that we should be coming forward for prayer. That we need help. That in this battle where we're being told lies and we're being accused and tempted and sometimes feeling defeated even before we sin, that, that we need to speak these things out loud. We need community. And so I want to challenge you to take advantage of the prayer team that's here at the front on either sides as well as in the prayer room across the foyer. But be praying with one another this week. Be praying for each other. Spend time in prayer during this next song. Come forward for prayer. If you've been battling something, something that a lie that you've been told again and again and again, and something that you just maybe can't even believe that you could have victory over, I want you to know that you can have victory over it. God's power is greater. God's power is the greatest. So let us pray together. Lord, we pray that you would lead us not into temptation, but that you would deliver us from the evil one. That is our prayer, this series. That is our prayer as your children, that you would deliver us. And so, Holy Spirit, as we hear the lies of the devil in our hearts and in our minds, I pray that you would cast those out in the powerful name of Jesus and you would replace them with truth and with life and with light and with hope and freedom that comes from you, God. We pray against the schemes of the evil one. We pray against the powers of darkness that would lie to us and tell us that we are worthless or failures or broken. But God, may you bring your amazing healing, your life-changing power into our lives. God, through prayer, through community, through time with you, Lord, may you break the power of sin and death in our lives. May you take this, this cycle that happens again and again, and may you break that in the name of Jesus. Holy Spirit, come. We invite you into this place and into our hearts. It's your name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.